Hello, Rich Bolas here. A big thank you for downloading the Dad Mindset podcast, where we explore different perspectives on fatherhood. In this episode, I chat with Mark Smith. Mark is an award-winning Australian fiction author who writes novels and stories for young adults. He was previously an English teacher and has spent over 18 years running outdoor education programs for teenagers. With three grown-up children of his own, Mark has a wealth of experience and insights to help with parenting. So I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Mark Smith. Mark Smith, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's fantastic to have you here. It was wonderful meeting you the other week at the um, the writing festival in Geelong, and I really wanted to pick your brains because you've done so many things from writing, teaching, uh, you know, bringing up kids, outdoor education, and I just feel there's so much gold in there. So thanks for coming along and and. You know, shedding some light on what it is you've been doing all, uh, over the last, should we say, couple of decades. Yeah, it's a pleasure. <laughs> now, writing is a big part of what you do now, Mark. Can you tell us a bit about what you got you into writing? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm a relatively, you know, I've, I've only come to writing in the last six or seven years um, after a long career as a teacher, as uh, firstly as an English teacher and then uh, retrained into outdoor education and environmental education, which I'm, I have a huge passion for. Um, and having been an English teacher, I always had this idea that I would like to write, like a lot of people. You know, oh, I've got a book in me. You know, I'd love to write a novel. I'd love to do. <laughs> um, but um, I was I was foolish enough to think that you know that I could actually do that. So I set aside some time back in about 2012, 2013 to begin to write short stories, and I did a lot of this through uh, through Writers Victoria, which is this magnificent organisation operates out of the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne, which helps new and emerging writers Uh, and I did a couple of courses there and started banging out these short stories which I thought were awesome Uh, nobody nobody else did Uh, and (laughs) get an audience uh, of one uh, yeah well probably about three (laughs) if you include my family Uh, and uh, after about 12 months of rejections uh, I realized just how much work needed to go into every each individual story when I say short story we're talking 1,500 to 2,000 or 3,000 words. That's what most short, sto- short stories are in Australia. And for me to get that up to publishable standard was a minimum of three months' work. Wow. So three months' yeah. work into a 2,000-word short story to get it to publishable standard. Do you think and people just don't realise that? Because I certainly uh, don't realise the work that goes no, into it. No, no. Um, and it is, and it's true of, I think it's true of, of most areas of life, but particularly in the arts where, uh, where people say, oh, you're a writer or you're a musician, whatever, you must be incredibly creative and talented. And there is, a, there is an, an element of creativity and of talent in there. But if I was to divide that up into percentages, I would say 10% creativity, 90% hard work. And I, I think that whether you work in design or whether you work wherever you work, I think that uh, if you, the discipline and for a writer, that means just going back to that desk day after day after day after day after day and being prepared to do that. And not just, not just when oh, I feel creative and all the muse is with me, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's a crock of shit. 
<laughs> you just got to push yourself through. Yeah, you actually, to become a professional writer, you need to be able to write uh, at any time, you know, and you need to be able to, it, it is a discipline. So for me at the moment, that involves getting up at six o'clock in the morning and writing for two, two and a half hours every morning to try to, and I, I don't always feel like writing at six in the yeah. morning, but I pick up the manuscript that I'm working on where I was up, where I was at, and then I, I continue with it from there. Um, but the short story has led to the writing of my first novel, The Road to Winter. And by the time I, I had got to the stage of, of thinking that I could write a full manuscript, I'd, I'd had about 20 short stories published in Australia and I had established myself as a short story writer. I could quite happily have just stayed as a short story writer and um, entering competitions and you get published in journals, magazines, newspapers. Uh, but I was, again, foolish enough to think that if you can write short stories, surely you can write a long story. Um, <laughs> and that's where the, first, where the first manuscript for The Road to Winter came from. And that was a, uh, it, it was a, it was a miracle, this manuscript, because most, most writers will tell you that they work and work and work. They might write two, three, four, five manuscripts, novels, before they get one published that finds some traction because it's an incredibly small demographic in Australia the publishing industry very small demographic in terms of a market because uh, there's only 25 million people in Australia of whom maybe 5 million would be fiction readers and I write young adult fiction which is a smaller market again so it's really only if you are and I'm lucky enough to be published into the states and into Europe that you you get into a much larger demographic. The US has 340 million people. So um, if your book gets into community libraries or school libraries there, that's massive sales compared to here in Australia. Uh, but I, uh, it was it was a miracle that this book got published. Not that it was there was anything wrong well, with the manuscript. You, you likened it, was, it to Tats yeah. Lotto, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. It is. It's like winning Tats Lotto without the money, uh, <laughs> because. Um, it's it's very rare that a, a book gets or a manuscript gets picked up off what they what they call the slush pile, which is unsolicited manuscripts that every publisher has, and they will have a stack in their in their publishing house of you know maybe three or four hundred unsolicited manuscripts, all of which are only the first three chapters, by the way, wow. and they're going to judge you on the first three chapters. Yeah, um, and I I'd only submitted to this one publishing house to text in Melbourne. Um, fortunately, someone picked up that first three chapters off the slush pile and read it on the way home one friday afternoon and it all sort of it all snowballed from there well i started reading it last night and you had me at the first chapter so i mean (laughs) like that's a i was really i mean i I knew it'd be good because you know you've won awards and everything Mm -hmm. but being a young adult sort of fiction novel i thought i'll just have a take a look at this but i got engrossed in it like straight away so it's really good mark yeah look it's it's uh one of the reasons that it's done as well as it has is because well the three books is they cross over into adult readership uh and in particular anybody that's familiar with the coastal environment with in australia and they're set on the west coast of victoria uh will find well, one of the things that I, I try to do as a writer, setting is incredibly important to me. And I want setting to be like an additional character in the book. And the way in which my human characters relate with that setting is a, is a real driving force for the narrative. Um, so having lived on the west coast of Victoria here for a long time, it, it just makes so much sense to write what you know. <laughs> yeah, you that's know? right. And it comes yeah. from you because you yeah. lived it. Yeah, that's right. Um, and if you can write from your own experience and you can write about things that you not only 
you are familiar in seeing, but you are familiar in feeling. It's, it's about creating an atmosphere and what I call a sensecape about being in that landscape. It's not just how it looks, it's how it smells, it's how it feels, the noises, you know, everything that goes with it. And that's what I try to build into these novels. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Great stuff, Mark. Now, we, you touched on earlier, because you sort of... Um, Actually, I can't remember whether it was we had the conversation before this or not. Now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I've had too much fun already. Yeah. The I think the the point you mentioned about um, being in the environment. Obviously, you studied environmental education and outdoor ed. Yeah. That w- at what stage of your life did that really sort of take off and be a big part of what you did? Uh, look, I probably I probably owe a debt. And this will sound very strange to uh, Jeff Kennett, who was a, a premier here in Victoria, who had made massive cuts to education when he came in in the 1990s, which meant that I became redundant as a teacher because I was an outdoor editor, um, uh, unqualified outdoor editor, I should say. Um, and they, they were the first people to go. So I left teaching at that stage um, and I... Um, and I went and retrained as an outdoor educator at, at uh, La Trobe Uni in Bendigo. So I'd always had a, I'd always been a surfer. Um, you know, I've surfed for 45 years. Um, always been a rider, mountain bike rider, bushwalker, anything to do with the water. Um, I've been, I've been into. So what I, I hadn't lost my passion for teaching, but I'd lost my passion for teaching in the classroom. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was to to take that passion and. F- for the outdoors and to try and imbue that in the students. Um, so um, I, I went away for a while, um, did a few different things, uh, worked for a not-for-profit for a little while, but again, it was running camps for disadvantaged kids yeah. in the outdoors. Um, and when I did come back to teaching as, a, um, as the head of a residential campus down here on the West Coast, it was in that I'd, I'd, gone, I'd gone further and done a master's in environmental education as well. So it was the driving force behind what I was doing with this residential campus. Yeah. And you've previously said that 15-year-old boys are totally overlooked in society and almost pushed to the side because they're too hard to deal with. And yet through your teaching and outdoor ed experience, you've found them to be an amazing resource I think were your words. Can you go into that a bit? Because I think for a lot of people, fifteen-year-old boys are an enigma. Yeah, they are. Uh, I think you just—I think you need to spend a lot of time around them to understand a few things. And I think there are a few basic principles about fifteen-year-old boys that that we can skim over. Um, you know, I think we need to be very careful of cliche when we're dealing with them. And as you say, oh, 15-year-old boys. The number of times that I, that you know, out at dinner parties or whatever, and I say, oh, I run a residential campus for 15-year-old boys. And people, oh, I'm so sorry, you know. That, <laughs> and you're like, no, it's amazing. And, yeah, <laughs> and I'm, I'm saying no. Well, um, and, you know, there are a few fundamental, that, that one, of, one of those cliches is a really good example is the way in which boys communicate. Um, and I, you know, he's just he just grunts, he just nods and grunts, and uh, you know, and that's the cliche. But generally, that's when adults or you take adults out of the equation, you watch boys in the way they communicate with each other, and there are they will they are incredibly physical in the way that they do it. They'll be grabbing hold of each other and they'll be you know making a point, whether they're arguing or whether they're having a joke or whatever it is, um, and they will. Uh, they can finish that conversation at a particular point 
and then 24 hours later pick it up as though no time has intervened. Didn't and they're skip in that a beat. Same, they didn't skip a beat and they're straight into that conversation again. Um, I think we need to take time to observe our boys and the way they relate with each other rather than always judging them on the way they relate to adults. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there, there are other things that I think that are really important with them too and that is that um, we – uh, one of the things that I that I worked really um, and my staff were very aware of was nonverbal communication with boys, and a lot of that was just it was nothing. Sometimes it was nothing more than just a, a nod of the head and a, or a raise of the eyes. And and what it says is, I see you, I acknowledge you. They don't necessarily want a conversation, but they do want to know that they're recognised um, and that they, and that you see them. You know, and that that sort of stuff, and even that you know that nod is important to them. Yeah. And you're doing like an upward nod. Yeah, yeah an upward like nod um, and, um, and a little raise of the eyebrow, you know. Yeah. Um, rather than that idea of, oh, how's your day? You know, what are you, what are you up to? What's, what's going on? What, yeah. You know, um, they don't always need that. Sometimes they do, um, but, but often they don't. Often the, they, the way they you did that, that reminded me, in the UK growing up as a 15-year-old boy, yeah. that would have been an, all right, mate? Yeah. In that that comment. that's it yeah and and you're not asking for a conversation yeah you're just saying and and the you know if the answer is yep that's fine yeah you know we don't need to push it um further than that and um so i, I you know th- there's a lot of that stuff which uh it, it's in terms of understanding where where a 15 year old boy is coming from and obviously you know they're, they're, it's very hard to generalize because they're um they're all coming from different backgrounds and um, but I've also worked with with a lot of uh, outside of education, uh, a lot of kids who have come from severely disadvantaged, abused backgrounds, um, and there, there's a whole different mode and codes of communication um, with those kids, boys and girls. Specifically, the nonverbal ones. Yes, nonverbal. A, a lot of it. Um, a lot of it is is just presence. I think with them. Um, and in what way? Sorry. Well, well, I'd, I'd be training young volunteers who are working with these kids on again on, on outdoor camps, um, and uh, that idea of presence, that idea of just being with them, sitting with them, and that there doesn't necessarily have to be a conversation when you are sitting with them, um, and it might just be the odd comment or, but just being there, being there is important, um, and investing time, investing in time, and in, and in and in not and and not sort of asking too much of that friendship or relationship, whatever it is that you are trying to build and allowing it, allowing them to come to you. Yeah. Um, and I think that, I think that we as parents and I, I, I'm no saint, like I've, I've stuffed this up so many times as, as both as a parent, as, Welcome a, as to the club. <laughs> and, and a teacher where, um, where I've pushed things, you know, when pushed at the wrong time. And, um, I think it's, I think, uh, with, with those 15-year-old boys, and I know raising my own children, that pick your battles, you know, pick your battles. And there, there are times when you do have to stand your ground and there are times when you do have to enforce structure and routine. Um, but there are also times when you need to just hold back and allow them to um, negotiate a situation for themselves. Um, but How would you discern between the two? What, what was your approach to that, Mark? Uh, I, think, I think that... Um, in any situation, whether it was parenting or whether it was as a teacher, um, we not, not many people recognise this, I think, but, but teenagers, and I, again, I'll, I'll deal with 15-year-old boys, they actually thrive on structure and routine. 
they thrive on it and they want it because they want to know where the boundaries are. And if you can establish where those boundaries are, then anything can happen. There's lots of great stuff that can happen. In, so there's some stuff that's not so great that can happen inside there as well. But, um, but this idea of, of sort of free parenting or, or free teaching where, you know, where I, these kids, will, they'll organise their own boundaries. No, they won't. You know, they will, they'll push further and further and further. Um, so there does need to be a point where they recognise that that particular behaviour is not acceptable. Um, and if I use again the situation of being a teacher with fifteen-year-old boys, um, one of the one of the policies that we had staff had was um, boys would um, say or do something that they knew was wrong, and then they would immediately say, "Oh, sorry," you know, it was the immediate apology. And and we had a we had a policy that was that was I don't want your sorry, I don't want you to do it. Yeah, you know. Um, because it is, and I think it is a, it's an out for them that oh, I can stuff up, but just say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, um, and and that kind of smooths it. Over. There's nothing wrong with them apologising, but we would be much better off if they didn't, you know, act in that way. Yeah, in the that's first right. Place. Yeah, um, but of course the the, the problem with with um, with 15 year olds, 16 year olds, 17 year olds is is, and this is another headspace that you've got to get into if you're going to be working with them a lot, as I was, um, is that. Uh, you know, there's a hell of a lot of development that still needs to go into the frontal lobe there. Well, um, they even take a step back as well, don't well, well, we? We take a step th- back when we go through that period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it is that it is an un- it, you've got to recognise that that's the, well, for me in that situation, a lot of those behaviours weren't malicious; they were unthinking. Yeah. And there's a difference between those two, and you need to be able to identify what those differences are. Um, and and I have seen malicious behaviours, deliberately malicious, you know, bullying or or whatever. Um, but I've also seen a lot of just unthinking behaviour. And when it's yeah. pointed out to them, um, and you need to understand that that that's a development developmental stage that they are going through. Um, and it doesn't mean you should accept stuff that's not acceptable. Um, you, you draw those lines. You have the boundaries. Um, but you also need to. You also need to realise that with with teenagers, a lot of stuff's going to happen. A lot of thoughtless stuff is going to happen. Stuff's going to get broken. (laughs) (laughs) They're good at breaking stuff. Um, (laughs) It's a superpower. It's a superpower. It is. Uh, And I think that, uh, and you know, one of one of the one of the problems that we dealt with very early on in this in the process of setting up this campus was about technology. Um, which is, I know, is the bane of a lot of parents. <laughs> We're all trying to deal with it. We're all trying to set boundaries and rules um, in an in a you know in an area which is changing virtually on a daily basis. It's, it's an arms race, yeah, isn't it? It is an arms race. Um, and we decided very early on at this campus that we were going to take the kids' phones off them the moment they arrived, um, so that they were um, so that they were out of fully present, fully present. Yeah. Um, and there are a number of reasons for doing that. Obviously, num- number one being fully present in that little community that we were trying to generate with them every week, that they were there. Um, and, uh, and we wanted them to be present, engaged uh, and functioning. And, and that's very hard to do with the earbuds in and, and, or when you're on your phone. Um, now, not a single one of them would ever acknowledge this, but the palpable relief... <laughs> that was visible with those kids when they did not have that obligation 
to be in contact was was so noticeable and that doesn't mean you know we give their phones back they would come for they'd come on monday they'd leave on friday four consecutive weeks and we give the phones back to them when they got back onto the bus on friday and get them there but they you know <laughs> listen to some music i've got to be in touch with so and so um but but no, i don't think that they missed them they weren't duty bound they weren't duty bound <laughs> yeah, like it's that it's that thing of oh the phone is there i've got to i've got to engage you know um and, and do you think that was driven by the parents as well? Like, oh, you know, call in, let us know how you're going. And we had, uh, we probably had, as as head of the campus, I had more um, disagreements with parents than I did with boys. <laughs> I did absolutely. Uh, yeah, people um, think it's the 15 year old boys the problem. <laughs> you were, watch out for the 44 year old parents. <laughs> wait to, wait, yeah, and often, so often, um, teachers will know this that you know that. Um, you know, you're dealing with a, with a student that you're having difficulties with behaviourally or whatever, and but then you have the parent-teacher night or you have the father-son night or whatever, and it all just comes into focus. <laughs> it all becomes it's, apparent. It, it's all ah. apparent. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I see where this has come from. Yeah. Um, and I think that, um, you know, we, we're rambling a bit here, but um, I had the opportunity to interview John Marsden about his new book at the Word for Word Festival. Um, his book is called The Art of Growing Up. Um, and he mentions, you know, this is this is something that rang bells for me. Um, that because when, when a when a parent says, "My child, he's not my son; he's my mate." Yeah, yeah. Um, and I ran. A, that was probably one of the biggest obstacles that we came across time and time again, um, in terms of, and and often that presented as the parents actually. Um, defending their son's poor behaviour. Even when it was absolutely Maybe. in the wrong. Yes, yeah. Um, and that's a, it's a very difficult thing to deal with uh, because, um, well, for any, you know, any, any number of reasons. Um, but it's clear that if that boy doesn't have those boundaries at home, then um, he's not going to accept those boundaries when he's... So you must have been really up against it when you had children that had very few boundaries at home coming on the camp like how would you even begin to set those boundaries you know on the first day of camp yeah and look i was, I was we were probably very lucky in that i mean the boys that i was working with uh were from you know upper middle class melbourne um so they're pretty soft in a lot of ways <laughs> uh and we were taking them into uh into the bush environment a residential campus you know so they're out of their comfort zone and we use that to our advantage um but yes if if we're not trying to we're not trying to mimic a boy's parenting when we are you know when we're working with them for those five days each week uh, we are setting our own boundaries we're setting our own behavioral expectations and we make it very clear that regardless of what happens at home this is what the expectation is here you are not at home you're in a different environment so what um, would that sound like like when is it the the first meeting with kids? Okay, just to let you know you're not at home anymore. This is not Kansas anymore. That yeah, sort of thing. It is exactly right, and and it's reinforced all the way through. You know, um, and the number of times again where um, you know I I've said to students, you know, I'm not your mum, I'm not your dad. You know, um, this is a different relationship, and this is this is how it operates here, um, and and 
a favourite saying of mine is, look, I'm sorry, son, but this is not a democracy. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, it's a benign dictatorship. It's a benign dictatorship. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, and as long as you're here and you're in this relatively isolated location, that's the way it's going to be. Mm. Um, but, yeah, making those rules very clear right at the very beginning is, is, was critical to the success. And um, for any number of reasons, you know, like a, a first week might have been disrupted in some way and, and we sort of missed those early briefings, um, the noticeable difference in working with those boys through a four-week experience compared to those who had the rules laid down right at the very beginning was, was palpable. Would it be one of those uh, situations where it was just always better to go a little bit too hard at the start to really make sure that the kids had no uncertain terms yeah. around where the boundaries were and then ease off a little bit later. Absolutely, yeah. And, um, and we actually, again, it was a policy of our staff that, um, which is almost the reverse of what happens in the classroom and that is that, um, you know, we, we, we begin very close to them, we're watching them, we're monitoring them, but over four weeks we we move further and further away and allow them more space and more time um, to to negotiate the situation for themselves because what we're trying to do is, is build some resilience in them, which is almost impossible over four weeks, but at least we can plant a few seeds. Um, and how they go about dealing, and, and it's so easy as a teacher and as a parent, as you know, to jump in to situations, I can do that for you, I can fix this for yeah. you, and I like fixing it for you because it makes you reliant on me. Yeah. Um, and we've got to be so... It's a, it's a gateway drug. It, it, it is. <laughs> uh, and we've got to be so careful of that. Teachers and parents, anyone working with, with young people has to be very careful of that because it is so much easier for us to do it, but that's not the point. Yeah. The We're point, stealing the learning experience from them. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, and, and you can do that in a number of ways. Like we, we, would, we would spend quite a bit of time away from the campus where we go for two or three days camping, bushwalking, whatever. Um, and we would we would say it's up to you to pack your own gear. Here's a list of what you need to take. Um, if you forget anything, it's your problem. You know, I don't care if it's snowing, if it's you know whatever the weather conditions are. If you haven't bought everything that you needed to with you, do not come to us and ask us to fix it for you because we won't. That, I- that's genius, but I think, yeah. I think in the sense that, do you think we can just do more of that from a parenting perspective? It's just about taking the time up front to say, right, we're going to the park now. Yeah. I'm not taking anything except my water bottle. Mm. You need to take your stuff and you're going to be in charge of it. And you've set that expectation yeah. beforehand. But I guess it's so hard to be that organized when you're trying to herd cats out of the Yeah, door. and it's also difficult to be consistent because yeah. you need to be consistent yeah. with it. There's no use doing that one day and then doing it differently the next day um, because, again, it's structure and routine, structure and routine. Um, and if they know that that's the rule um, or that's the way that you're going to organize those particular excursions, then that's the way that it goes. And, and between you, both parents as well. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, I suppose you can have slight variances where if you're going out on a solo tour with the kids, you have they know how you roll, and then likewise with the other um, sort of parents. Yeah. But I guess, um, yeah, the consistency, almost like dog training. Yeah. You let the dog yeah. on the bed one night, yeah. and you've unwound yeah. twenty nights yeah. of, <laughs> and of making it sleep on the bed. That's right. And they have to learn from that experience. And it's a tough, it might be a tough experience. You know, we've had kids that um, uh, we've got into camp after walking for a whole day, you know, into a relatively remote location and, uh, and 
we discover they haven't got their sleeping bag with them. And we asked, well, why? How, well, we, because well, I thought it would be lighter without it. Well, um, that's correct. <laughs> correct. <yeah. laughs> it's going to be much Points. colder at night time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, and we quite deliberately don't bring extra stuff, you know. So, if he has to snuggle up with the bloke next to him, <laughs> the shed, other guy that forgot yeah, his the other, yeah, um, then then so be it. But um, and you might think, well, that's he certainly a won't forget it a second time. He won't forget it a second time. And I mean, I think that 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 sounds a lot like what we consider old-style parenting, you know, older-style education. Um, but there are some elements of that which I think we've lost, which we could certainly do with implementing more now. Do you think the old-style gets a bad rap when it was done in a cruel manner? And there's sort of a certain level of enjoyment that parents would, ah, you know, that's... Whereas if you're just doing it out of, no, no, we set the, the guidelines and yeah. you... you didn't mm. adhere to those so there is a consequence and, yeah. it, and i think that consequence thing it's a neutral thing there's no there's no sort of emotion attached to it and that's that's really important um and it was often again you know what we would say to these students would be um look um if i discipline you in some way it's not because i don't like you personally it's not because it, it's not an emotional or personal response it's just i'm doing my job um, and you haven't met the expectation that you know you need to meet. So don't take it personally. Um, and I think it's one of, the, one of the great things, this is one of the great things about 15-year-old boys, is that you can do that with them and um, you, can be, you, can be, you can be a hard ass, you know, and, and they will take that and they might be really affected by it, but 24 hours later, they're back again. <laughs> no, and it's, what? As though, as though yesterday didn't happen, you know. <laughs> Um, which can be a bad thing in some ways, but um, but they do they do have an ability to let things go, which I really love um, in terms of being an educator with with boys of that age. Um, they they do have the ability to let things go. Yeah. Now, you're a parent as well, Mark. Like, how has that gone applying it to your kids? Because. I'm I'm just having thoughts here going, oh, it'd be amazing to do that. Yeah, I've got to try and do that. And I'm just wondering how much of that do you reckon you learned on the job as a parent and how much did you manage to apply? Um, I think that w- one thing that I would say before I, before I start that conversation is I think that being a parent or becoming a parent made me a much better teacher um, because up until I had kids, I think I, I approached students in a different way. Um, in what I, way can you? I, I think that, um, in particular, with uh, no matter what ha- what sort of behaviours a kid presented with, um, I was then able to say, "What if that was my son? What if that was my daughter? Would I respond in the same way?" Um, and generally, the answer was no. I, I would respond differently. I would I would re- prob- probably respond in a more empathetic way, um, or I would I would you know work on that relationship more. Uh, I think when you, you never, if you're not a parent, um, it's 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 a more difficult concept to understand. I, I'm not saying that every every teacher has to be a parent, um, but I think it it aided me personally. It aided me as a teacher um, to to be a parent. Um, as for, um, I, I wish I was. I wish I you know was able to say no. I was a great parent, um, <laughs> but um, like every parent, you learn on the job. Yeah. Um, and I think one, one of the things that, that my wife and I, um, uh, we, we worked pretty well as a team. We shared that load and we were both very consistent with our kids together. Even when 
sometimes I would disagree with the with the you know she just knew you had yeah. her back that's right right yeah. and you, I, th- I think that's important and, and I mean that's a that's a that's you know, you know perhaps less than common nuclear family now because a lot of people are, are tackling parent parenting on their own um, more and more um, but it's it's where, where there are two of you I think it's important that you have each other's backs was that an explicit thing that you guys talked about to start with like hey you know what we might disagree on things but let's just agree to disagree and have each other's back i think it probably happened more by osmosis than than actually sitting sitting down and, and talking about it uh and we would because sarah and i were talking about this very thing this morning <laughs> it's, it's a good time yeah. i think i think it often it it came to a head around particular issues and how when we would actually talk about how we're going to deal with this with you know with yeah, well, it's like having kids. a team talk together so that when the kids approach you in different rooms... That's right. Yeah, <laughs> you've yeah, got the same, they're very good at let's, that. Let's keep our story consistent. <laughs> so that's, yeah. that's what Sarah and I were talking about. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, I mean, you know, to an extent, I, I think that's, that's a, it's a really important part of parenting if you're lucky enough to have two parents who, to, who are parenting together um, to, to have each other's backs, to support each other and even when you don't necessarily even when you agree don't necessarily agree yeah absolutely and i can think of a dozen different occasions yeah more i've got to where, in my head right yeah, now where yeah, i've been yeah, i've yeah, almost flipped and just yeah. promised a, oh, yeah. a classic one this morning was i almost threatened to get rid of one of the toys and i was like oh, i shouldn't have said that oh, i've just stepped too far <laughs> but yeah you know Having yeah. known that Sarah would have my back was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I remember one where um, one of our sons was he just turned 16 and without asking us, he had bought tickets to the big day out um, and was going to the big day out. And he sort of... he That sounds he, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and he, um, he, he told us, he didn't ask us, he uh, told us the yeah. day before, I've got tickets to the big day out, I'm going tomorrow. You know, and the big day out was, you know... Was, a big deal. was a big deal. Um, and he's had it... You know, there are a number. Can you of different describe what Big Day Out is? Oh, sorry, Big Day Out, a uh, huge concert, single day in in Melbourne. I think it was it ended up at the Melbourne Showgrounds, um, which was you know there would have been twenty bands on right through the day, um, huge concert, um, and uh, so it was one of those. It was one of those things where I myself personally, I was probably. I was disappointed with the fact that he hadn't asked us about it, but I wasn't that fussed about him actually going. Whereas my partner was was you know strongly disagreed with him not, and definitely he did not want him to go. Um, and we talked about this and talked about this, and there's a funny angle to it too. But um, but and we eventually you know I agreed. Okay, let's put our foot down. He's not going. You know, um, and so he continued to argue this for for most 24 hours you know and then eventually just accepted that but <laughs> then we found out that that as soon as you know like 24 hours earlier when we when we started this negotiation process of saying no he had the tickets on ebay <laughs> so he oh, really he, he knew, knew he the knew hammer was, was about coming. to fall <laughs> I'm going to make hay well. <laughs> I'm not That's wasting right. this money. In yeah, fact, yeah. I'm going to double my money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so that, so as soon as you flagged it with him, yeah, your the son t- basically the tickets, but he continued arguing. Continued arguing. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> well, you got to give it to him. That's <laughs> yeah, and and you know, uh, and 
it is it is a matter. It, you know, it's an overused word, compromise. But um, when when you do have two people who are parenting, and and even if those even if those people are parenting in different places, if they're separated, um, just the the necess- necessity for communication between them. Um, so that kids aren't playing off one parent against the other, which they are apt to do. Yeah. Well, mm. get the best results yeah, that that's way. Yeah, exactly <laughs> If right. you don't like the answer over here, go yeah. over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so with the, can we just double back onto the, the consequences then? What, what sort of consequences would you have, how would you have worked that whole thing as a parent? Because, sorry, just to um, describe, can you just take us through the ages of your children? Yeah, um, so we have three children. Uh, so Oliver's 31 uh, Maddie is 28, turning 29 next week, uh, and Harley is 26. So you've gone through the whole. We've gone through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of in terms of consequences, um, it was it was you know, again there there's so many things that just seem like common sense but don't always work, and and it's maintaining levels of communication with them where uh, when those excuse me, when those consequences do happen, um, that they are in a position to accept them. Um, because if the communi- levels of communication aren't there, then it's going to be seen as, you know, it won't be seen as, a, as any sort of compromise or it'll be just seen as a straight-out punishment. Um, and, you know, again, I can think of innumerable times when, uh, when we, you know, where there had to be consequences to what had, what had happened. And sometimes they're pretty harsh, um, but we were prepared to follow through on them, and uh, and I mean, I think they've turned out okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, would you would you uh, usually put the brakes on something and say, right, we're going to talk about this tonight? Is that the usual, yes. like the first? Yeah, I think that's a volley. Yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes that might be uh, um, depending on. You know, the, the thing is, I think you've got to recognise that um, that your relationship individual relationship with a son or a daughter um is not static you know it is it shifts around and sometimes one parent might usually be, quicker than you expect yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and sometimes one parent might be a little bit closer because you've been doing a little bit more with them um for that particular month or whatever it was um and and they might that might give, that might be an in that's a way to, to begin to talk about it and then bring the other parent in if the other parent's around um, for me, with with my sons, um, they both, you know, they were Australian boys. They played footy at the local footy club, and and um, uh, I was actually. This is a. I think this is a point worth making. Is that it? It always kind of seems strange to me the number of parents who would drop their kids at footy or cricket or netball and drive away and come back in two hours when it was over. Yeah. You know. Um, I we we both took the the um you know, the point of view that if they if they're going to play, um then I'm going to be involved in some way, so that so that it it, in, it it gives you something more in common with them, um and and it can can be a can be a pain you know, having to drive yeah. all over Certain the countryside calls. and <laughs> yeah. yeah um but but I mean the other thing is that all of those organisations um require volunteers for the whole thing yeah. to function you know but. But I can think I, I can think of a you know a couple of times where the relationship that we developed with our kids through doing that sort of thing gave us a level of just understanding. Just by being on the sidelines. Just by being on the sidelines. Yeah, um, I can think of a time when when our youngest son Harley was um, particularly upset by by something that had happened. He was sixteen years old, 
um, and uh, you know he had a, a particular um, incident happen, and it really affected him. Um, and uh, and I was you know I I'd spent a lot of time with him around around his football, and so I I sort of took the lead in in sitting down and talking to him, and and um, and I was able to you know what what broke the ice for me with him you know and and got him to open up was i was able to say to him mate um watching you play each week is the best two hours of my week and he just you know um and that kind of you could see it stunned him yeah absolutely stunned him um and it and allowed him to open up and I, i i don't think we say that to our kids often enough um you know, and and you mean in the sense that we don't actually uh, verbalise that we enjoy spending time yes. with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's not that it's not being a mate with them. It's it's being there still as an adult. Yeah. Um, but but do you uh, think it's it it is a slippery slope for parents and that, and they get caught up in the thinking just because they want to spend time with them they have to be the mate with them. Yeah. And it's it's making sure that you you're very clear with yourself. Yes. That. I'm yeah. still going to be the parent, yeah. and this is what I yeah. determine I, as a parent. Yeah, and I think that can that can become much more it can become complicated when uh, when the parent has an investment in what that what like the footy club, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and it becomes um, something that's that's important. It, it, you know, it's more important to them than it is to their kids. Well, you see actually it so playing. much where parents are living yeah. vicariously through their kids. Like I didn't yeah, quite yeah. make it to the yeah. team, yeah, yeah, but yeah. by gosh, you and my son's going to, or my daughter's going to. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just being aware that that um, that you know those behaviours that you exhibit, they're watched, they're seen. Um, one of the things that we recognised in in working with going back to the campus in working with fifteen year old boys is that um, is that they watch. So, do you think they, they pick up more on body language than oh, anything? They, they, Would that be their primary communication? Um, I, I think that they they listen and they watch, and so it is body language. It is it is listening to listening into adult conversations and and taking cues from those adult conversations. So we recognise that. Um, right from the very beginning, we even had to be very careful about the way we spoke to each other as staff. Yeah, because that would be, you know, sort of amplifying what they thought about the staff yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Or at least setting a pecking order that they knew. Oh, that's the weak one. We can get away with that's murder right. with that guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's the same way if you have two parents in a household. Um, that the the way in which you communicate with each other even when you think you're not being heard or being listened to is critical um, because that's where they um, that's where they you know if it's a whether it's a um, a heterosexual relationship or a same-sex marriage whatever the way in which those two adults are communicating with each other is what the kids are taking their cues from yeah about how you communicate with a woman or how you communicate with another man whatever it is Um, and i think uh, we just need we're not always aware of that um, we're not always aware of the impact of, for instance, them seeing um, seeing you drinking. Um, you know that yeah, we we'll always have a glass of wine. You know, um, and so they take their cues as oh, everybody has a the social uh, norms. But yeah, they're, yeah, they're social norms. Um, and uh, I, we also had a, a fantastic 
you know, one, one little eye-opener for us in terms of the way in which a family functions, um, we, we always, always sat down at table together. At, that was just a, a that was a that was an absolute given. given. Yeah, um, nev- never ate in front of the TV. Nothing. No one was allowed to eat in their room. We sat at the table and we talked. Um, and that's a crazy idea, Mark. It's a crazy <laughs> idea. Where did that ever come from? You know. <laughs> and I know a lot of people do this, and and it it just it's so enriching. But it's almost like a touchstone, isn't it? It's, it's the one time of the day when the kids know that they can be heard. Yeah. Yeah, it is, and and that's in, that's interesting too, and, and making sure that adults don't dominate the conversation, and it's not, it's not even, it's not even. Oh, how was school today? What did you do at school today? You know, it's it's well, what's going on in the world at the moment. You know, um, and you know, if I if if I was sitting around a a table with my family tonight, I know what we'd be talking about. We'd be talking about the repealing of the Medivac legislation in the Senate today yeah by the government you know that was that was the sort of thing that we would talk about um and they and, and not holding punches as well no no but, because i find that really it bugs me a bit when people dumb things down for kids kids don't need things dumb, dumbing down no, at all no no they don't um and i think that you actually you actually encourage them to engage with more ideas um and on a more intellectual level if you're like by speaking in that way yeah and by challenging them in that way and by as you say by not dumbing down yeah i i I think i've mentioned this before but i struggled so much to deal with my friends kids earlier in life and because a lot of them would be talking in a sort of like baby language and stuff Mm. i was like i I just can't do this (laughs) not because i i I thought there was anything bad with it i just couldn't do it (laughs) and i can't i don't know how you do this this Mm. is kind of a bit weird and it was a friend just pulled me aside and said no, you just talk to them like an adult. I was like, oh, right, that's easy. I, I can totally do that. <laughs> okay. And it was game on from there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that, uh, I, I mean, what, 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 in, what inevitably came out in those conversations, we, we, never, we didn't always agree with each other, um, but there was a respect for a different point of view if it came up. You know, and, and, and not one dominant voice that would say, yeah. you know what, I've heard everyone, but you're all wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. And, and that's very easy to do as a parent. Um, because you know you hold the floor, you know you've got the you've got the authority if you want to exercise it. Um, but and it must be pretty addictive as well, because essentially oh, God, someone yeah. that might not be listened to in other theatres of their their life. Yes, yeah, yeah. All absolutely. of a sudden, they can dominate in a particular domain. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. It's um, it's a tough gig. <laughs> <laughs> and and I you know I I think that I think that discussions like this are fantastic because. Um, I think if, if anybody thinks that they're not just muddling through, you know, we all are. Yeah. Or if anyone thinks they've got it wired tight, they're full of shit. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just or, or, te- that or tells you that they've yeah. got it wired tight. Yeah. And oh. often, often you're, you know, I, I don't know where you where you ever get to a point of thinking you've been a successful parent. You know, my kids, as I said, are in their late twenties and their thirties, and we've just moved into a different form of parenting. Now we're still parents, and it's still important that we're there. Um, as a sounding board and as um, you know, encouragers of their careers. That um, and you know, like I spent half an hour on the phone with my with my son today. He's thinking about selling a business, and and I've and just wanted my opinion. What do you think about this and that? And and it's been negotiating process he's been going through. But we just use each other as sounding boards like that. Yeah, uh, he might he might totally go off on a different 
tangent to what we're talking about, but um, but he was wanted to just throw some ideas around and he needed someone to listen. That's great because he's <coughs> looked to you for a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that doesn't happen. This is, this is the thing that uh, I think that as your kids get older, you reap the benefits. Um, because if you put the work in if up If you front. put the work in up front. Um, and um, we spent uh, – the campus, when I was running it, we would often – every program we would have a father and son night where the fathers would come down, stay with us, and we'd go through a sort of bit of a program, sort of transition to manhood thing. And what I told them – Every single one of those parents that came down was, um, um, you can't get this time back. You know, you, this investment that you are making now is critical. Yeah, um, and today, you, today. This, these hours. Yeah, these hours and this time that, that you are going to have with your son is critical. So use it, you know. Um, and, and you can't... Um, and I know that everybody has pressures in their lives from from mortgages and and so often now you know both parents working so um, but there's still there's still that investment that needs to be made um, and I and I think now that now that our kids are older and they've all got their own careers um, but we still have a closeness I mean we still travel together you know like we go oh, fantastic um, we go skiing we went to went to Japan together. Um, as you know, them as adults, we did a, a month trip to the, to Canada and the states, and um, and it's it's actually awesome because you know um, in New York, as an example, we're there on New Year's Eve, and my wife and I just took off into Central Park and for the fireworks, and the kids went and found a nightclub in in Brooklyn and had an awesome <laughs> night and staggered in late, and but then we're all up and we're moving on the next day or whatever we're doing, and. And we all have a, we all have shared interests as well. So whether it be art, whether it be writing, um, and snow. So you know we go we ski and snowboard. All of us ski and snowboard. Yeah. And it's something we really have in common. Um, have, have you made that? Was that a conscious decision like twenty years ago to mm. go right? No matter what, we will go skiing every single year, or something along those lines. Wasn't it necessarily every single year, but um, we just saw it as a great opportunity to get our kids out into a magnificent environment, a very different environment from the coastal environment that they've been brought up in. Yeah, and um, they took to it. They've actually they're actually probably more competent and better snowboarders and skiers than they are surfers, even though they're brought up on the coast by oh, by surfing parents. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, because mm. I've had friends that have said the same thing. They made a commitment that they would take their mm. kids skiing, even when they couldn't necessarily afford it. They would make it happen. But come sort of 15 years later, their kids still want to go on holiday with them. Yeah. And I, I love yeah. that story. I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is really compelling. <laughs> okay. yeah. Also very expensive. Yeah, <laughs> okay, still. we can't afford it, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it'll be worth uh, it. And but the other, the other think, thing that you recognize yeah. then is too that their skills will far surpass yours <laughs> yeah. so quickly. Yeah, you, you've got to wind your neck in after yeah. a few years. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> mm. Maybe I won't yeah. jump off that ledge. And I think that's, a, that's a, it's actually in terms of parenting – I think it's a it's a really important thing to understand that they, there is a point where your kids begin to understand your um, your you're, you're not immortal you're not and immortal. you're not yep. the, your the, vulnerabilities. The sen- well, yep. what's the, oh, the the phrase that would be like? You're not amazing at everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, that you have faults, uh, and I think that's a fantastic thing that they see that and and we and we don't have to pretend yep. that we don't. Um, and and uh, we we never sort of tried to hide those from our kids, 
Um, and I think that's given them – I think it's it's improved our relationship more than anything else. Actually sort of owning the fact that, you know, your foibles and, yeah. and just yeah. not trying to cover it up. Yeah. Is yeah. that what you mean, Mark? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it also – there's a lot of there's a lot of good natured ribbing that comes with <laughs> having kids yeah. that that I, I, I and this is this is critical as well. I never ever ever uh, underestimate the role of humour in any relationship that I have, um, but particularly with kids because it is um, and it's uh, it's something that it's a it's a base um, and every every I think every family I, I come from my own family is I'm one of nine kids one of ten kids sorry. Um, and uh, and there is a humour that goes with us in that family that we've developed ourselves, which is critical to the understanding of it, you know. <laughs> and I think every family, if you give it, give it the opportunity, every family develops that. It's like your own language. Can you give us an example yeah. of what it would be uh, like when you were growing up, Mark? Oh, look, um, it was, it, we were incredibly competitive because we had, we had six boys. My mum had six boys in a row and then we had three girls and then a, 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 another girl. Um, and it was, uh, it was everything like we would have traditions around playing, uh, playing cards as an example. Um, and because our grandparents passed down to my parents, to us playing this game called 500. And there would be, there would be a language that went with that, that anybody listening in from the outside would be thinking, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but it was just, it was just, you know. It was common. It was just we all understood what it was, uh, and there was a particular uh, there's a particular record that my dad I don't know where he got it from. I've never never been able to find it, but it was this it was this record called Laughter Unlimited, and it was just bizarre. It was it was pre Monty Python, yeah, but it was Python like the show types. Yeah, but it was totally Python esque and just way out there, you know. <laughs> and so we those sayings we still have now, you know, which makes no no sense. <laughs> <laughs> whatsoever um, to anybody else, even to us, you know, I'm not even sure what that means, yeah. but we will repeat it again and again, you know. Um, <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> nine, nine kids, oh, that's a big game of cards. It is a big game of cards. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, look, and it was, I think it was wonderful. I was gifted with a, with a magnificent childhood um, yeah. because I was allowed to roam. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Just, you know, when you have a big family, and this was, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, um, where, and people think it's a more dangerous world today. I don't necessarily accept that, but um, but we were just told to go, get out. Yeah, you know, come back at dinner. Come back at dinner, and we would. Go, I would go. You know, if my parents <laughs> ten k's down yeah. the road. Oh yeah, and further. You know, <laughs> yeah. out into the bush, and we'd be building huts and climbing trees, and there were market gardens all around. We'd be pinching fruit and vegetables yeah, from the scrumping. market gardens. Yeah, there, you know, <laughs> uh, it was fantastic. What a great childhood. You know, yeah. and what. What I was able to do then was in this sort of, you know, brings, back, brings us back again to writing, um, the characters that I was able to create, those young people um, were outdoors kids, you yeah. know, um, and, they, and they developed their, their resilience through an understanding of the natural environment around them. And that's, that's clued into everything that I've done in my life, whether it be um, parenting, teaching, writing has been the one consistent thing has one of the consistent things has been um, engagement with this magnificent environment that we're doing our best as a human species to trash but yeah um, but there are still we're doing uh, a pretty good job as well yeah yeah that's right yeah but one of the things you 
uh, you mentioned before we actually started this interview as well was like you were obviously very much into surfing and the outdoors up until the age of what, 14 or 15 but then something happened that actually changed the course of your life didn't it can you tell us a bit about that mark yeah um i between the age it was about 15 between year nine and year 10 summer holidays i uh, was um, holidaying on a farm up in gippsland I had a catastrophic fall off a horse i got dragged along upside down um and i broke my neck and among other injuries and i was uh what that meant, I actually broke it again in six months later, um, playing uh, British Bulldog yeah. at school. Um, and, um, yeah, so it's... So it, just at a hospital, basically. Yeah, I, it, it's, well, well, what happened was that um, the, the first time that I broke it, it um, I just went to this little country hospital and they didn't have an X-ray machine and they didn't X-ray. Um, so they sent me home. And I walked around with this incredibly sore neck and I'd also fractured my skull, um, but that went undiagnosed. So I had this incredibly sore head and neck and stiff neck for about, I don't know, three months probably. Um, And everyone said, oh, you fell off a horse. Yeah, of course, you know. Um, And then the British Bulldog um, about halfway through that year. um, And this time they x-rayed and they said, this has happened before. This is this is an old injury that you've reopened. Oh. Um, so I'd been walking around effectively with a fractured vertebrae C3 wow. for for six months, um, and by some miracle that and the and the the vertebrae had actually exploded because I'd fallen directly onto the top of my head when I fell off the horse. So there were fragments of bone that were. Gee, so it's floating. actually like like pile driver. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and you know, mir- miracle number one was that I didn't die. Miracle number two wasn't quadriplegic hmm. um and but i walked around with this uh, anyway the way in which that changed my life was that i had to wear this big neck brace and wasn't allowed to do anything i had to lie flat and couldn't have a pillow and all of those sorts of things um and up until that age i had um uh i was 15 years old and i'd never read a book i knew how to read but i'd never read a book but my mum was a big reader and my mum started giving me these books to read and um, and within those six months while I had the brace on um, and I was really limited in what I could actually do, I read an, a heap of books. And the reason being that I wanted to escape from the situation that I was in and I realised that books were able to take me into other worlds and other people's lives and, and I used them as a form of escape. So that introduced me to reading. I didn't still didn't become an avaricious reader until later, until I, um, until I finished school, um, went to teachers' college, did literature, um, and then started to get right into it. And that's probably that's where the English teacher came from, and from the English teacher came the writer. So, um, had I not broken my neck, uh, I don't. My life, I think, would have been very different. Very, Why? very, very different. There'd be a lot less stories around. There'd be a lot less stories around. I don't think. <laughs> I don't think the road to winter and wilder country and and land offences would have ever happened. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Mm. So. Double-edged sword. Double-edged sword, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't advocate breaking... <laughs> don't break your kid's neck to make them a reader. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, do you have any projects on at the moment? Like, what are you working on at the moment, Mark? Yeah, I've got two uh, two things. Um, I'm, I'm writing another young adult novel, uh, and it's based around uh, sort of a climate change theme, 
um, present day. Um, but I'm also uh, contributing to uh, an anthology uh, by uh, a surfing anthology the, by being put out by Fremantle Press. Um, so about five writers around Australia um, writing some element of surf writing, I suppose you'd call it. Um, and I've taken the opportunity to interview four people along this coast and just about the way in which they have engaged with the sea through their lives and how surfing has been an expression of that engagement with the sea and how it's influenced their lives. So that's what my piece is going to be in the anthology. Oh, fantastic. Mm, yeah. Um, so it's, it's a, a writer's life is a great life. It's, yeah. it's, it's fantastic. Um, I, get to, I get to have that creative outlet. It is hard work, absolutely. But um, Yeah, like Stephen Pressfield said, just do the work. Just do the work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. Um, and it is, uh, it's, you know, to be able to live down on the coast here, I still surf, I still ride my bike, um, and I write as well, and that's my life. Living you know? the dream. Living the dream. And I get to do, <laughs> the other thing is that because The Road to Winter, my first book, is, is taught in schools all around the country now. So I get to go to, I do about 50 schools a year, um, going into schools, talking about being a writer, uh, if they're studying the book and, you know, we live in the Geelong region here, there are 15 schools in the Geelong region that are studying the book at either year eight or year nine. Yeah. Um, so I get to go to all of them, talk to these kids about, you know, about this story that only existed in my head, you know, <laughs> um, a few years ago. And that's the magic of writing. It's yeah. the magic, it's the beauty of it, even though it's hard work. Um, I love that. It's I love pure the, creativity. It is. Because nothing turns no. into something no. quite, you know, just... It's a new world you're creating. It is. And I love the idea that someone in Connecticut or someone in London or someone in wherever is engaging with this story about this kid named Finn, you know, um, that this story that only existed in my head three or four years ago. Yeah. And now it's kind of out there and people are responding to it in all these incredible ways. Um, and you have no control over it. Once it's out there, it's, it's not your baby anymore. <laughs> and, and that doesn't mean everyone's going to love it. Some people might mightn't like it, and you've got no control over that, and you've just got to accept. Like any any piece of art, um, it's out there, and people will respond in the way, whatever way they want to, and that's I think that's the beauty of it in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. What advice do you give the kids in the schools? Like, because obviously there'll be quite a lot of them that say, "Oh, I'd love to be a writer" mm. or something. What is that advice that you give them? Yeah, um, I, I I'm always. I'm, I don't like the idea of sort of being up on a high horse and <laughs> yeah. saying, oh, I can give you a, yeah, here's yeah. my writing advice. <laughs> um, but there, there are a couple of things that have worked for me and that's all I can say is these are the things that work for me. And one of them is the KISS principle, um, keep it simple, stupid. And yeah. that's what I have to continue to tell myself. It's about the story. Don't worry about the words, you know. And, you know, my other mantra is don't let the words get in the way of the, t of the story. Tell the story. And so you can go back and embellish it later. That's fine. But just tell the story. The story is what people want. Yeah. We are innately, um, you know, we are wired. We, we learn through story. Yeah, we learn through story. And, of course, the hard thing is that, you know, human beings have been around for tens of thousands of years and we have told each other stories. We have painted stories on the walls of caves and, and then we've written stories. There are billions of stories that have been written and here you are trying to write a new one, yeah. you know, um, and yet somehow we do it with the magic of it is that there are only 26 letters in our alphabet <laughs> and somehow we manage to arrange them into a new story, you yeah. know, and I, I love that idea of, of creating something that, something that hopefully will, out, that will outlive me, you know, that story will continue on. 
um, long after I'm gone, hopefully. And it must be wonderful for your kids to actually read that as well. <laughs> like, if they, <laughs> unless they've actually put a, a, what would you say, an embargo on, <laughs> I am not touching dad's no, work. <laughs> no, they're actually, they're actually really supportive. They've all read them, or they, they tell me they have. Um, but, <laughs> you quiz them over the Christmas <laughs> dinner. <laughs> I, do ha- I did make a mistake in the last one, and that was uh, I named two characters after two of my kids. <laughs> and, and left uh, one out. And left one out. <laughs> Schoolboy so errors. <laughs> So the third one, so Oliver's the oldest one. Oliver didn't appear in the book, but I've been told that my next book has to be called The Life and Times of Oliver Smith, (laughs) (laughs) the the story of my favourite son. (laughs) It won't be. (laughs) But there may be an Oliver in it. We'll see. Yep. Uh, (laughs) I love that. Now, obviously, that was the advice you'd give anyone wanting to be a writer, but obviously... Like from a parenting perspective, what advice would you give yourself if you were to go right back to the start? Ah, uh, yeah, it's or, or or a particular age of your children. Yeah. Like if you found something particularly trying, or you yeah, know, you went through a big learning curve at some stage. Yeah. I, my my advice to myself, um, and I, I, I say this to a lot of people, is that uh, especially people with young kids, with preschool kids, I would go back to that time in a heartbeat. Because it goes so quickly, and I w- and you know my advice to myself would be just slow down. This is not going to last. Enjoy it. Um, this that beautiful uh, dependence that those kids have on you, that relationship that you you begin to develop with them, and and the beauty of seeing them begin to develop character and personality that makes them individuals. Um, and that is, I. You know that period, that first five years. It, we all know it's we all know it's incredibly formative. And um, but my yeah, my advice would be just slow down and enjoy this because, um, like I said, my kids are in their late twenties and thirties, and it seems like yesterday that I was um, you know watching their Christmas pageant at kindergarten. Well, you yeah. said that yeah, because yeah. it was yeah. Will's last day of kinder yeah. today, and it, yeah. you get that like sort of. Lumping your throat, like, yeah. oh my gosh, this is it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just, just just, relish that time, hold on to it. Um, but the other thing that I would say is I, I wish someone had have told me that that um, that you will learn, as you, you will learn on the job um, and that you will pass through phases as a parent. We think that we think that it's all about the kids changing and moving, but it's about parents changing and moving as well. Not changing the rules, but modifying the rules as those kids get out of modifying the boundaries, modifying the routines as their kids um, grow older and able to understand. When I say grow older, you know, move from being a child to a teenager to an adolescent to a young man or young woman, um, and maintaining, still maintaining consistency. Um, with them that they need to know that this is the sort of person that you are um, and you're not chopping and changing yeah um, and that you're you're consistent in the way that you your own bearing your own person is consistent your relationship with your partner is consistent um, that they're the sorts of things that I wish somebody had have told me that they were the important things but like everybody else you're fumbling along you feel as though you're fumbling along in the dark <laughs> yep um, and <laughs> And, you know, you wonder why your kid's behaving differently to your mate's kid or, you know. Um, but uh, that, that, and the only 
the only other thing, and I, I think this is something that we actually did and did well, and that was get them outside. Just get them outside and let them let them let them rip. Let them rip. Let them roam. Let them. Don't worry about you know. Um, you know I. <clears throat> I'll get into trouble here, but, <laughs> but um, like we'll put a disclaimer yeah, yeah. again. Um, for me, it's really important. Don't sweat the small things. You know, in in twenty years' time, you're not going to look back and and think, "Oh, I wish they had been more. Their bedroom had been more tidy, um, or I wish they had have done this." So, just you know, don't sweat the small things um, because the things that you remember will be the memorable things. Obviously, they'll be the they'll be the times that you were together as a family. They'll be the times when. You went through difficult times together, but you made it through. Um, maybe when there was grief in the family, when you bonded over, you know, we eventually lose our grandparents and um, and it's times like that that, that the family becomes significant um, and they need to know that, that that place is still there for them. Um, yeah. That's wonderful, Mark. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> This has been great. Mm. Thanks it, ever so much. It's, it's absolute pleasure. Um, it's uh, it's you know you've you've tapped into a lot of passions of mine in between teaching and parenting and writing and and the outdoors and surfing and bring it all together. So it's been great. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Well, um, thanks ever so much, Mark. Pleasure. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Mark. If you'd like to check out Mark's books, you can find his work on Amazon by searching Mark Smith Winter Trilogy, and I'll also put some links on the website. Now, before you go, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to give the show a review on whatever platform you consume your podcasts on. I really love hearing that people are enjoying the show. I'd love to give a shout out to Shane O, who left the following review recently. The Dad Mindset Podcast has been such an awesome find for me as a father of two young boys, husband and working in a demanding job and generally flying by the seat of my pants the whole time. The guests have many great ideas and the personal sharing is inspirational. Thanks, Rich, for seeing the value and sharing it in an engaging way. You've got skills, man. I am definitely a better dad for it. Shane, thanks ever so much. Really appreciate it. Okay, as ever, if you have any questions or want to reach out to me, my email is rich at thedadmindset.com. I hope you have a great week, and in the meantime, enjoy your caffeinated beverage. <laughs> <laughs>